since I've been a CMO since, you know, 2009. And uh, you have to stand out. You have to be relevant and you have to be distinct. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guest today is Grant Johnson, CMO of Embers. He has had many tours of duty, as he calls them, being the CMO of many different types of businesses of many different sizes. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting is he's been CMO of startups, early stage, million dollar businesses, all the way up to billion dollar businesses and plus. And so he's a lot of perspective to pull from to kind of really figure out what works and what doesn't. So we talk a lot about how to build team, how to build culture, his methodology around that. Of course, we talk about how to bring a brand to market, how to uh, how to successfully disrupt the category. We talk a lot about differentiation, particularly for Embers being in a category where, you know, personally, I say this in the interview, I feel like a lot of the businesses and brands out there are trying to tell me the same thing as a potential customer. Um, so how do you actually stand out? And then it was actually a question that he brought up and sent to me ahead of time, but I really like it, which was, what is the biggest mistake that first-time CMOs make? So I think you'll enjoy his answer to that as well. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Grant Johnson. Hey, Grant, thanks for joining me. How are things in Southern California? Well, they're great. As always, the weather's uh, beautiful. I've played a lot of tennis over the weekend and uh, now back at it uh, Monday morning. And for those that are listening and not watching, you can't see the bookshelf full of tennis trophies that Grant has behind him. That's uh, It's been a bit of a, well, a little bit more than a hobby from what you were telling me. You're like ranked or something like that? Yeah, I well, at my level for uh, 4.0, if you know the US uh, NRTP ratings. Uh, and so, you know, you can be uh, 17 to 70. And if you're at that level, you compete with whoever comes out that weekend. So I'm a weekend warrior. I win a few of them and uh, lose plenty, but uh, it's a lot of fun and it, you know, keeps you young and uh, uh, energized, it, it, you know, the thrill of competing and of course more fun when you win, but uh, it's fun regardless. Amazing. So Grant, you are actually one of the few guests that line by line answered the questions that I sent over ahead of time. And so I actually want to go through them because like I was saying before we press record, typically they're more of like a directional how we guide the conversation. But I really like the answers that you put down. And I think you put them to put them together pretty quickly based on the timing of the email. So I want to get into that as the meat of the conversation. As we talked about just now, there's a few other topics that we're going to touch on. But where I wanted to start is... Uh, a quick story that you told me when we had our first catch up talking about this, doing this recording that I think, I think will help people get to know who you are and then you can pay it off as you start to talk about your experience as a CMO and your recommendations for modern marketing. So you told me that at one point you got approached by a recruiter for an opportunity to go work at Intel to lead the Intel inside work. But when you asked the recruiter what the mission was for the job, the guy said, don't fuck it up. That's the mission. Don't mess things up. And you said, that's not for me. So do you want to expand on why that's not for you and what that tells everybody who's listening about who you are as a CMO? Yeah, it's a great uh, starting point, Eric. I, uh, I've always felt that life is more exciting at the 5%. You know, 95% of, you know, people you might encounter are happy with going along 
Uh, but the excitement's really when you're on the edge, or in my case, working with a disruptive uh, brand, someone t- trying to shake up the category. And if you look at my my track record, yes, I've been uh, part of larger companies. It's generally, though, they acquired the company I was working for, and I probably didn't stay too long because I really didn't feel I could make the impact that I enjoy doing. And, you know, it was interesting. I Early in my career, I had a reputation and built a global brand at AST Computer. And as you said, uh, the person who pioneered the Intel inside, they saw the work I was doing and the recruiter called me. And, you know, once I heard the mission, it's like, I can't get up on Monday morning not to screw something up. You know, I don't mind screwing something up because uh, you learn things by mistakes, right? But I'd rather try to elevate a brand or put a brand on the map <laughs> personally. Amazing. So let's get into the questions then. So the first one is, what are you most curious about right now? You know, I've told a lot of peers and and the folks on my staff, I think now is the best time to be in marketing. I've made a career of it. However, with technology, the ability to predict outcomes. Uh, I've been in uh, mostly workflow automation categories, but I've also been in cybersecurity and uh, the last company I was with, uh, again, one of the seven companies that's been acquired, uh, Silence was acquired by BlackBerry, had artificial intelligence. So I think, you know, machine learning, uh, analytics, you know, uh, pattern recognition, the ability to just be smarter about everything we do and maybe not get it right the first time, but learn from what doesn't work and iterate is really an exciting time because, you know, whether it's intent signals to help you with pipeline or customer adoption signals to help you with product-led growth or really just more willing customers uh, uh, open to being an advocate for your brand, you know, the analytics of the insights can help you uncover these nuggets faster. It, it lines up really well with one of the things that I'm really passionate about and that we talk about a lot here at Rival, trying to understand what drives the growth of successful challenger brands. And in our framework, you know, we got six principles for successful challengers. One of them is, we call it dynamic, but basically it's what you're talking about. It's the ability to get smarter faster than everybody else. And I've always thought that that is more important than how smart you are at any given time. So there's obviously the snapshot of how much do you know right now, but then the ability to create culture, which I know we're going to talk about later on, capability, workflow, process, technology, which to me is kind of the, you know, the top of the pyramid, if you will. I really kind of see those other pieces as building the foundation. Is there anything specific that you're really excited about within that right now? Or another way of asking that question is, are there specific kind of tools, tips, tech that you use at Ember so that you've seen across the landscape that you think people should go check out if they want to, you know, figure out how to bring more of this technology into how they do modern marketing? Well, uh, the MarTech stack is just so enormous. I couldn't begin to, you know, start pointing out all the different uh, tools. It's, it's more try and see what works for you. Uh, you know, we recently swapped out uh, one of our intent signals. There's a lot of companies doing that. And we swapped out uh, our uh, social media propagation platform to, you know, really help get our uh, voices more broadly heard in, in the marketplace among key, you know, constituents and stakeholders. Uh, but I would say to make sure that whatever tool you're adopting, you you, know, you set a plan as it, it, it have somebody to manage it, 
what the expectations are, you know, early check-ins, is it working? Are you getting the return from the effort you put into it and the dollars? It's it's the people costs, honestly. We we could probably adopt more tools. Um, I've got eight direct reports, 60 folks in marketing here at Imburse. And uh, you know, there's certain technology that might work for us. I just don't have a dedicated person to run it. I, I think at some point I'm going to have a full-time, what I call, I've got a couple analysts now, but you know, just a, you know, a, a database uh, manipulator to, you know, figure out how to slice and dice things even beyond what we do today. So I just think really making the most of what you have. And if you're not getting the returns that you're looking for or the leverage, you know, I, I'm in three or four peer groups and just, you know, ask another CMO and somebody will have tried either successfully or unsuccessfully will help guide you on what to consider and select. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Also, something I think about a lot is you are very rarely the first person to actually figure out how to do something. And so asking people that have already done it as a default strategy almost, that's how I think about it. And a lot of kind of stuff with rival or past jobs is like when there's a problem or opportunity that comes up, there's of course, yes, the straightforward, how do I solve this? But the question I always like to ask myself is who else has solved this already? And how can I learn from what they've done? So moving on to looking at a day in the life. So I know you get up early because you got calls with the East Coast and, uh, you know, time zones are tricky. You probably play some tennis at some point. But when it comes to your role as CMO of Embers, what does a day in the life look like for you right now? You know, I try to be very structured. I think all of us, it took a while when we used to go to the offices. Some folks still do. But, you know, you have to have a, a level of discipline in how you approach your day. Um, and so for me, I, you know, metrics, we have what we call uh uh, objectives and key results, OKRs. Some folks are more familiar with KPIs. It doesn't really matter what metric you use, but the ones that I'm most responsible for, I, I, I take a look at at the beginning of the week. I have you know dashboards that you know, are pushed to me. I don't have to go pull them. I get you know push reports from Salesforce or some other one of our uh, analytic tools, for example. And, you know, kind of look at how we're progressing and also look at what my deliverables are. I, I, as part of the executive leadership team, I help set the top priorities. And so marketing is not only a contributor to delivering on things like, you know, pipeline and product adoption success, but we're also the orchestrator to help, you know, sales succeed, partners succeed, product uh, uh, management succeed. So I, I really look at the interconnectedness of our objectives to make sure we have alignment and support to, to do the most important things first. So that's a good part of my day. But also what I've found, and a lot of their peers have seen this, it's really easy to just get caught up in all what I call the, you know, the information overload and interrupts. And so I try to be really disciplined also about not just giving in to, you know, meetings and, you know, email management that could consume your entire day, but just blocking time. I do it every day. Uh, some people, hey, I'll take two hours on a Friday. It doesn't matter, but you've got to have time to think. Uh, I think one of my strongest talents is uh, helping the team think outside the box. And so we schedule brainstorming. You know, I, I like to riff with, you know, my creative team or demand gender product. Or what if we did this? And, you know, I'll tell the team, hey, it may be a crazy idea, but if you don't at least think about something, you're going to, you know, basically follow the herd and not stand out. Yeah, I think about that a lot as well. I mean, all that we have is time. So it's a question of how you use it. And actually tying together a bit of what we were talking about before to this, 
I think it's a constant process and a constant evolution of trying to get smarter, trying to get faster, trying to get more efficient, trying to learn from other people that have done it in different ways. So I think that focus on productivity, and that's that's you know that's my biggest hack as well. It sounds so simple, but what gets prioritized gets done. What gets booked in my calendar gets prioritized. Therefore, if I don't put in time for brainstorm, for strategic development, for whatever those down things are, those downtime things are, then the urgent can end up taking precedence over the priority. Um, You're exactly so, right. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of people that have gotten to your level, they're going to have their version of that. At some point, they figured out how to manage their time so that they could play offense. They could block time to kind of get ahead of things and do the important things, not just the urgent things. Yeah, so and I guess you also that, just, I'm sorry, yeah. just add one more thing. You also just need to, you know, be open, uh, you know, some space. Like I, I came up with our campaign, Imburse It. You know, you think about Google. So to get Imburse Better Know, we're trying to verbify. Now, our CEO, my boss, asked me to accelerate brand development back in 2020. The idea came to me in 2021. If I had thought about it in 2020, I would have done it. But I'm out on a walk and I'm just open to ideas. Like, Embrace it. That's it. And I, I talked to like 20 people, our board and you know my peers and my staff. And everybody said, hey, we can do something with that. And so we have. And again, if you're just, as you said, the tyranny of the urgent and just got to get all this stuff done, you don't save time for the you know, the brainstorm, these ideas won't come to you. You have to make time. So I'm actually curious to go on a bit of a tangent because you brought it up and it was on my mind anyway. Verbify, verbifying things. You know, it's kind of the holy grail for a lot of businesses. They want to become the Kleenex, the Uber, the Airbnb. Um, how, I mean, it's, I guess it's it's so hard to do, right? It's one of those things where it's like, if you can accomplish it, amazing, but it can be really hard. It's really hard to get people to change behavior in general, but to get them to actually put a label on a whole category is a very big marketing mountain to climb. I know also, you know, over here, I've been seeing some ads for our friends over at Plio in Copenhagen uh, out of Denmark. They're trying to do the same thing, Plio it. And to me, you know, I'm a marketer, right? So I'm a little bit biased and I have a little bit of a lens through which I view these things. It's a bit academic. It's not just functional and emotional as a consumer, but I am a customer for, or I could be a customer for Plio. I'm not, I'm the target market. Same thing for Embrace as a small business owner, I think. Do you work with small businesses or is it more we kind do. of the enterprise? Yeah, it's a, yeah, okay. It's a very important focus for us, SMB. So, so to me, and again, I haven't, I haven't seen your communication as much. Let's just use Plio as the example. I'm kind of like, what does that replace for me? Does it replace expense it? Does that replace, I'm trying to figure out how that fits into actual behavior change. So for me and my anecdotal story is less important, but I guess the question is, uh, what, what led you to deciding that this was the strategic way forward, given how challenging, at least I think it is, but let me know if you disagree. And how do you actually try to accomplish something like that, that unless, you know, you tell me if I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here, but there's not that many brands that have been able to do that, right? Well, it's not de rigueur. In other words, we don't have to do this to succeed. We're growing, we're succeeding. Uh, we, we like a lot of companies. We try a couple major endeavors. Some call it, you know, lightning strikes, needle movers. And uh, we did a couple last year. One was to come up with a whole model. Uh, what we call the spend optimization model, so that customers could adopt our technology over time. And that's resonated really well. It's, it it took off in a matter of months for prospects and customers to see that we want to be a partner with them and not try to push our solution, but let them adopt it at their own pace. 
And the Imbursit was an idea exactly as you said, don't just expense it, Imbursit. it. There's a better way. And so we've done commercials, we've done social media campaigns. You know, you go and you support local business or you support giving back and you just Imbursit. it. You know, snap a photo of the uh, receipt and then you take away the time-consuming, uh, tedious task of having to, you know, gather, submit and wait for reimbursement. It happens automatically. It's pre-approved. We know that, you know, if I go out to lunch and when you're out in L.A., Eric, and uh, we've got a business deal going on and I spent $85, you know, I haven't bought a bottle of wine, so it's a legitimate expense. Why submit an expense report? So we're trying an evolutionary path and to do both creative as well as like our implementation team has what's called one, two, three, and burst it, right? Instead of one, two, three, go. And so the customer starts getting acclimated. And I think we really need to have our customers become part of the movement. We're not going to create the movement. I'm not going to go ask the board for $100 million to just, you know, get people to do it. it, it in fact, I don't think Google sent out, set out to have people Google it. That just became the way to do it. So if it happens, great. If it doesn't, you know, we are creating some differentiation. And our employee base of, you know, 900 going on 1,000 is very excited by embarrassing it, right? And that's, that's a value, too. We're trying to engage and retain staff. So if they like it, I'm halfway home. So what the spin optimization model, is that, is that what it was? Yeah, Could the you spin maybe talk optimization about that model. A little bit, if that was Yeah, a, what we did is we, start, we did research. Story. It was research-based. We talked to firms, customers. And, you know, what we found is a lot of companies have a vision like you you know everybody talks about digital transformation every company needs to you know digitally transform yeah, that's a given but you can't adopt you need people process and technology and, and time to adopt things and so we you know rather than trying to say here's our portfolio adopt it all at once that's crazy cuz you just don't have the people the bandwidth to it so we have various stages for spend management so you have expenses you have invoice automation we do payments we do travel analytics. And so we, the baseline stage is ad hoc. It's unmanaged. And then you manage, and then you accelerate, and then ultimately you optimize. And so what we do is we talk to a customer and their, and their teams and say, hey, what, where do you want to go here? Uh, do, you, do you have a vision? You, you may be happy just being managed. You never want to be optimized in expenses. Or you want to be optimized expenses, but just manage an invoice. You're tired of writing checks, waiting for payments. With our invoice automation uh, from Imburse, you know, it can all happen in an automated, uh, speedy fashion. So that's really what the model is about helping customers take a look at holistically what their business objectives are and trying to align those objectives. And it so happens we align with a solution, could be a product or a service, like we help with, you know, administering our customers' accounts or running analytics reports from that's a service, not a product. That that's great. And then they, they see us more that way as a trusted advisor. That's the place you want to be. Nobody wants to be just, you know, trying to sell something to, you know, make the quota. We, we get you have to do that, but you want the customer to believe that you care about their future success, not the current sale. Great. So I'll bring us back onto the main path of the conversation now. So uh, I had a great segue, but it's great because I think that was a good tangent. I forget what the segue was now. But anyway, let's talk a little bit more about you and what mattered most to getting you to where you are. So obviously you alluded to it. Um, at the beginning of our conversation that you've kind of worked in a bunch of different businesses, been through a lot of acquisitions, but I guess quickly give the quick overview of kind of your background. And then I know you've got a couple things to share on what you think mattered most to getting you to the position and the role that you have today. 
Yeah, I, I started a rotational assignment out of college and worked in a bunch of different departments. And, you know, what lit my fire was sales and marketing, you know, customer engagement and where the action is and, you know, shaping opinion, uh, advertising and communications as well as, you know, demand gen and so forth. And, you know, early in my career, I had aspirations to be ahead of marketing. So I think being intentional, I, I've told this to a lot of people, is the most important thing. There's something about the human brain in the universe that if you say, I want to get somewhere, you know, I'm not a fanciful believer, you know, wish it and it, make it so. But, you know, just by focus and repetition and commitment and, you know, uh, you know, determination, you can get there. And I remember at one point I got to director, you know, first you get to manager, you manage people and you director. And there was a couple of VPs, I won't mention their names. And I felt like, you know, I'm teaching these guys marketing or this person, let's say, you know, I, I could be doing that job. I just don't. In fact, a person who recruited me at a company left and I, I raised my hand and said, look, I, I'm ready to be VP. He said, no, you don't have any gray hair. I've got some now. It's like, well, why is that a criteria? So I guess I have to get older. So I finally got older and, I, and, and ran marketing. But I think that's really the key is to having that intentional path. I mean, you can get somewhere on an accidental path. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, end point. But for me, it's really been you know, systematic approach to, you know, running marketing organizations and then, you know, trying to help companies get to the next step, next level. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's just kind of reflecting on my career and my thoughts on that for a second, because I think I kind of ended up here by accident in a way. I'd also, I still don't really know where I'm going. Like I know the path that I'm on right now, but I was always fascinated when I was younger and growing up with the people that were like, I know exactly what I want to be. And I'm, I'm talking growing up, not like six or seven, like going sure. into university and in early 20s, that type of thing. Um, and I feel like I never did. And in some ways, I kind of still don't know. Like, I've got a broad sense. Um, and so I think, I don't know. I don't know if this is fair, but there's kind of like the macro intentional of like, this is what I want to do. I think people are often, sorry, I'm kind of rambling here, but I think it's a really interesting uh, part of the conversation. Because I think people are often very fascinated by the uh, the what of where they want to go. They want to be a CMO at a big company living in XYZ place, making ABC money, whatever it is. And I actually think that like the how and the why almost are more important. So what type of role do you want to be doing? Who do you want to be working with? What's the purpose of that job? How are you affecting the people around you? I think um, it's clearly not a fully formed thought in my head, but you really triggered it. I think there's a wider conversation around path, basically, is what I'm saying. But being intentional on figuring out what that is and then systematically working towards it while being open to kind of changes as they come, I think is, uh, I think is key. At least it was for me. Yeah, there's, in my mind, there's no one way. And as I said, you know, you could be on a, a circumstantial path, maybe not haphazard, but you opportunistically go here and there. But I was also influenced, you know, most of us reflect back. I'm sure some of your listeners are early, some are middle, some are in a later stage of their career. And, you know, what do you remember from college? Well, I remember Raghavan Iyer, my political science professor, who would deliver his uh, lectures with no notes. He was brilliant. And he said, and as I was senior at 21, he said, you know, set out to what you want to do. You don't want to get to 50 and wish you hadn't had done something you didn't try. So I think, you know, you should pursue interests and passions. But ultimately, if you're more intentional, you have you just increase the likelihood to get into that goal. It doesn't mean the other place you get to may be better. But that's sort of why that sort of stuck out in my mind. Like, you know, I, I, I thought about, you know, being LA native, would I want to be 
I love films when I want to be a you know writer or director. But once I started working, I was enjoying marketing, so I never thought about it again. But I would encourage somebody early in career, you know, try something you want to do. And if you don't succeed, at least you tried, right? And then try something else. Yeah, it's interesting, the surface area of luck. I think I first heard that term on a Tim Ferriss podcast. And I kind of dip in, in and out of the Tim Ferriss thing, but I thought that was a really good point. Is like, you don't always know the things that are going to create opportunity for you. And you certainly can't control them, but you can control how much you put yourself out there and how many opportunities you put yourself in that could become lucky for you in whatever way that is. Right. So Grant, shifting back and, and focusing a little bit more on marketing. So if you had to pick three rules for modern marketing, what would they be? Yeah, I, uh, you know, this is tough, you know, limit it down to just, you know, three things, right? And, um, you know, I would would probably say that, uh, you know, you know, being full brain, you know, it's funny, I've talked to a few other CMOs and, you know, a lot of, maybe 10 years ago, you would come up through brand or demand or brand comms or, you know, product. But I don't know a CMO today that's not, who's successful, that's not, you know, full brain. So, you know, you got to be analytical. Uh, you have to be creative. You have to be, uh, you know, you have to be a good, you know, a recruiter and, and uh, uh, mentor for your, your staff. Uh, so I think, you know, that's, really, you know, pretty important. The other thing, you know, from my uh, perspective is um, that uh, you really have to be a leader that people want to follow. You probably heard the term other folks, you know, followership, you know, it's, it's really the sign. And I think being approachable is key. I, you know, COVID was a reason why we did this, but I still think post COVID, it's a reason to do one-on-ones with my entire group. Now, if I had 600 people be hard, I've got 60. And so I do regular touch bases. Like I may have eight direct reports and they've got managers and so forth, but I want to be able to be accessible. And uh, so that's important. And then last, just, you know, being authentic. I, you know, I, I've always been a WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get, right? I don't, I don't have any agenda. And, you know, you, you know, you, if you think I do, then you're, you're wrong because, you know, I'm just trying to help businesses grow, help my team succeed and have fun along the way. The one-on-ones with everyone is such a key, such a key, to be honest. I mean, you know, our company is 12 people, so that's easy for me. But spending time working with Gary Vaynerchuk for so long, he still made it a priority to do that, even when VaynerMedia was, you know, 100 people and 500 people and 1,000 people. And I'm sure to a certain extent, you know, the meetings are really short and infrequent, but I'm sure he still does it at 1,500 people. Um, So I think that that's a great one. Um, So, Grant. If you had the opportunity to start your role over again from scratch today, building a true challenger brand, challenger business, what would you do differently right now? I would move faster. One of the things I remember talking to Eric Friedrichsen, our CEO, and you know he was stepping into his first CEO role, and this is you know early 2020, and uh, Imburse is bringing together of seven separate, you know, product lines that all had their own origin, heritage, customer base. And the power of our portfolio is that we have tailored solutions and we don't adopt a one size fits all. And there was a lot of fear and trepidation among the, what I would call the legacy brands that if we just at one fell swoop said, we are now in bursts, uh, that we might've had customer defection. You know, we, we had had FUD slung at us by, 
some of our biggest competitors, another, you know, aspirants to, you know, the crown, if you will. And so we took a measured approach where we first did an endorsed brand, uh, Chrome River uh, certified by Inburst. Then, we, then we've gone to a, what we call a shared brand. So it's Inburst Chrome River, Inburst uh, certified, Inburst Abacus, Inburst Tally and so forth. Uh, but we could have gone to a master brand or a branded house right away and maybe, you know, doing it a little bit faster you know, you're going to always introduce change. That That's the one thing about brands is the products and services change, but the brand should be the constant. And I think we could have gone a little faster. I'm really proud of the progress we've made. I have a 12-point, very sophisticated, you know, brand tracking uh, measurement that I, you know, share quarterly with uh, other executives and the board, and we're making steady progress. I just think we could have made a little faster progress if we took a little more risk earlier on. Yeah, and I, I really do think, you know, a lot of the work that we do is with challenger brands. And it's always really interesting sitting in between kind of bigger, more established businesses and these challengers, some of which are startups and scale-ups, but not all of them. But I really think you can trace so many of their advantages and wins back to their ability to make decisions and move quicker for better or for worse. You know, the mistakes happen quicker and you get the learnings faster. And then of course you get the wins and you get to the right place faster as well. So I, you know, I say it so often on here, I'm sure people are sick of hire, of hearing it, but I really think that speed is one of the biggest competitive advantages that any business can have. And if you're a leader of anyone, certainly if you're the leader of a function or a company, one of the questions you should always be asking yourself is how do we move faster, especially right. as you get bigger. So talking to marketers out there, we've covered a lot of ground. I know we're not wrapped up yet. This is typically the question I ask at the end, but I want to ask it here. And then I've got a couple of follow-up questions for you based on your background and things that we've talked about. But from your experience and the role, the seat that you have within the industry today, I know you do a good amount of mentorship for other marketers out there and other CMOs. What's the one thing that you think marketers should be doing differently now? Yeah, I think that um, you really have to... Have did, like we were talking about earlier in the conversation, you have to spend time on optimizing, and you know it's you're never one and done, right? You're never like I've got this tech stack, I've got this tool, I've got this you know best practice, this template, and and so I'm always pushing the team like okay that's good, but I have a philosophy good enough isn't you can do better, so you know the tools will help us, but it's more the the human factor. Of, you know, having this restlessness that I, I feel I've always had, like, Hey, I think we could do better. We could, we could push the envelope more here. You know, it, it hasn't, uh, hit peak optimization. Right. And so I think, yeah, just making sure what parts of your business. And again, if you're strong in one area as a CMO or leader, you know, find somebody who's stronger in the other area and then pair up with that person. And I think, you know, the team can make, you know, what we cut, what we come up with together as a team, uh, we recently did a brainstorm and, and we threw a bunch of ideas at the wall and, you know, a couple of really stood out and now we're pursuing those. And uh, I think that's the thing that I would advise. And you just have to, just like anything else, you have to carve out time. So you have to look at the data, look at the trends, look at what competitors are doing. Um, and then like, what could we do to take, make a step level improvement here, there, or elsewhere? So you teed me up very well from one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. When we first got introduced, when we first had a chat uh, a little while back before this recording, you said that you have a methodology for building teams and cultures. And I'm very curious to have you unpack that a little bit because I think 
a lot of people talk about team building, culture, capability, et cetera. I haven't heard the term methodology thrown around with it all too often. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your approach to that. Well, Eric, if I share that, none of your listeners can use that to try to recruit anybody on my team. I'll, re- I'll track them down somehow. Uh, but I think, you know, partly it's funny how it happened was I just believe in a real positive can-do culture. And uh, I'll talk about the, the values that we came up with as a management team that I was pretty instrumental in finalizing for Embrace. But, uh, you know, I was at a couple companies, uh, I can't name them, but I felt the culture was not optimal. Some may have called it dysfunctional, maybe not quite toxic. And so I felt like I had to create a subculture, to, you know, to engage and retain folks. And partly how I do that is, you know, from the one-on-ones to uh, to recognition, to ongoing communications, uh, to the quarterly recognition. So what I have set out to recognize is certain behaviors that I think help marketing become a performance-driven organization. Yeah, you've heard terms revenue marketing and you know, uh, performance market, it doesn't, whatever the term is, it doesn't really matter. How can you contribute more? And so, you know, I'll recognize folks that created pipeline or have digital savvy or teamwork or take an initiative or leadership. And it's peer recognition. I don't recognize them. And so what's great about that is now peers are, have reasons to think about, you know, we, we do better as a team and who do I recognize, who recognizes me and I was just reflecting with my director of communications recently, and I think we're really in a good place as a team. And uh, God, don't spite me if I for saying that, but it suddenly five defectors happen in the next five weeks. But uh, it, it took time to do that. So you have to invest in people. You have to invest in the culture. And you really, you know, you have to, if people are uh, uh, negative, you've got to get them out of the business. I don't care what function they're in. And so part of it is, you know, we're better together as a team. But if we've got a detractor in the group, I want to encourage that person to go somewhere else. Because if you're not having fun here, please go elsewhere. But I think, it, you know, it, it, and my whole team buys into that. My, and I mean that the leadership team, maybe, maybe not every person on the team. Some people may have other issues going on, why they're not having fun at Embrace or whatever company XYZ. But we try to, you know, have fun, work hard. You know, uh, we have mandatory PTO and, you know, you got to be able to rest and recharge. But I think yeah, kind of building a culture where p- people feel like we're there for them, we're inclusive, uh, we want them to to learn and grow and advance their career, and uh, you know uh, achieve job satisfaction at you know milestones along the way. We're not just here to extract the maximum out of each person. And I think some companies have that attitude, surprisingly still. And I think the retention and you know, attrition reflects that. Yeah, and I, I think that's always been the case, but particularly in the world of today. Um, you know, post COVID and everything going on in the economy, I think the best talent is not going to, you know, certainly not going to respect it and probably not accept it for very long if they don't get some of the things that you're talking about. So Grant, I think the last thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on, and we were chatting a bit about this before we pressed record. So personally, I'm just very fascinated by the category that you're in, because I think it's going through a lot of disruption. There's a good amount of challenger brands in it. I know the UK and European landscape of it better than I do the US. But one of the things that I always think about as a marketer, but also as the target audience or the target customer, the target market for your business and a lot of the businesses over here is how do you differentiate? Because to me, and again, anecdotally, it seems like a lot of the offerings out there, a lot of the brands out there 
kind of promise and do the same thing in their marketing communication, at least. Basically, you can manage the finances around your business, expenses, whatever it is, faster to allow you to focus on the things that matter. That's kind of a lot of what I see in the industry. So how have you thought about trying to differentiate embers? And I think obviously the wider question is we really believe one of the biggest factors in the success of successful challengers is that they find and own a very clear point of differentiation in their industry. So how are you thinking about that for your business and what advice would you give to marketers listening? Well, uh, first, Eric, I would say that you've, you've hit, hit it precisely. You, I, there are maybe categories that don't have a lot of competition. I've mostly been with challenger brands and disrupting the status quo, certainly since I've been a CMO since, you know, 2009. And, uh, you have to stand out. You have to be relevant and you have to be distinct. You can't just be relevant because everybody's like, if you think on a functional level and you go to a spec sheet and you do a comparison table, I think, you know, one company has this feature. You're probably not going to stand out. You're not going to win that. But, you know, what we've done a lot of analysis, win-loss analysis, you know, customer advisory groups, uh, you know, in-person events where, you know, we just talk to customers and we try to understand like, you know, why did you choose us? Why do you stay with us? And I think our brand promise that we humanize work is a sustainable, as you know, from your, your strong background, it's, a, it's leverageable and it can apply to spend optimization, spend management, we do, but it can, it can apply to other categories that we've thought about over time we may venture into. But the, that really, uh, those two words, humanize work, it's, it's really, we came up with it before the pandemic. It, really resonates. You know, we believe in work-life balance and we, we want to give time back. Uh, yes, we do automation, right? And uh, we provide tools that help you save time, money, uh, and, and and make your staff more productive, but it's how we do it. And we hear time and again that, you know, we, uh, we're more approachable. Uh, we care more about the customer and we have to live the brand. I, I co-wrote a book a million years ago on branding and I, and I came up with this thought, which was, Every contact matters. Every interaction matters. And I still believe it today that uh, everyone who, especially if they're field facing, you know, you're shaping the brand one interaction at a time. And so if we keep doing that the right way, you know, we build more advocacy, we build an inverse uh, brand movement. And I think that's how we differentiate. Yes, we have to innovate faster and we're, we're working very hard. I think we've got a great development capability uh, and we have lots of ambitions to, you know, eliminate the expense port and do away with paper checks forever and, you know, automate uh, corporate card reconciliation. We call it, you know, modern P card, purchase card. But it's how we do it. Uh, the kind of people that we bring into the company, the values, I think that's what's going to be the differentiating factor, you know, uh, over time. So I said that was the last question. I lied because I realized that you actually, so in the brief that we send over, we put something at the bottom that's like, if there's any other questions you want to ask, and nobody ever takes us up on it, but you did, and I actually really like this question. And so let's touch on this real quick before we wind, wind down. So what is the biggest mistake that first-time CMOs make, in your opinion? It's all about people. They, you, you come in, and look, most CMOs or uh, CMOs are, you know, functional heads, they're not, you know, wallflowers. They're, they're, they're driven, strong-willed folks. But I've seen with others, and I've talked to peers, where they come in, it's like, well, I don't want to upset the apple cart. This person's been here five years, and this person came from that acquisition. I, I think you can't go too fast in figuring out who's with you, 
who's not along for the new journey and, you know, top graded, upgrading, replacing staff. And I'll tell you the best compliment I had, uh, and I do apologize to the people who left the company because they were good people, but they were not right for this particular mission. And one of the other executives said, could you take over my group for a while? Because I really got a clean house. I said, no, you have to, you have to do that hard work yourself. But the fact is that the mistake they make is, you know, like good enough, as they said, isn't it? And like, they've got somebody who's mediocre and they, well, that's not bad. Well, it is bad because you want to be outstanding. And so I, I had one company where in 90 days, I, you know, I think that's probably, you know, a speed record. But certainly in the first six months, I mean, you don't want to wait a year and sort of assess the landscape. So I think just going fast, as we were talking about, in a business model is good. But when it comes to people, that's who's going to do the work for you. So you want to always try to, you know, get the best. of. And I've always also noticed we've had people leave in the last two and a half years I've been there. But I also think that as you have somebody leaves, OK, now there's a chance. Let's find somebody better for that role. And I, and I think to a person, as I reflect on some of the replacements, we've done that. And, uh, you know, just somebody had the energy. Part, part of it's just like people can get burned out in roles. You have to understand that's going to happen. And you've got, you know, uh, rising stars and shooting stars. And once they've, you know, shot to the moon, they want to go, go to Mars. So they're going to go into a different company where they can fly to Mars. I could not agree more. And I think it's one of those things, like everything that actually matters, that people hear a million times and they get it in theory, but the execution, the practice, the reality of making those tough decisions is so hard, but also where all the opportunity and all the risk actually lies. So I think that that is a fantastic place to leave it. Grant, before I let you go, one last question. Who else do you think that we should have on the show? Other CMOs out there that you think would be a good fit for our style, our conversation, these topics? Well, Kathy Johnson, have you talked to her before? No relation. I don't think so. Where's she? Where's she? Uh, talk desk. Top desk. No, talk, I haven't. Talk T T A L T S. She is fabulous. Talk I desk. Did, okay. So the, the Salesforce has a group called the CMO Club. I'm, as I said, I'm part of a couple of CMO groups. Yeah. And there was twelve of us that worked on what we called the CMO Playbook, and we over a period of five months, we there was a Forbes article written about it. The twelve of us, and we, we'd come together, and. Uh, uh, we talk about like what's most important to, over the course of a CMO's career. And, uh, you know, Kathy and I and 10 other folks are on there, but I just think uh, you'd find her very refreshing and refreshing and uh, interesting to talk to if she's open to it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'll have to look her up. All right, Grant, I really appreciate you making the time, especially so early in your day. It's been well, and so late in your day, Eric. Thanks. Good getting connected. Good luck with Rival. Keep it going. I'll no be worries. watching you guys and uh, look forward to catching up and maybe in LA in the future. Sounds good. I'll let you know when I'm over there. Thanks so much, Grant. Have a good one. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a growth consultancy that builds challenger brands, strategies, and capabilities to disrupt categories. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.